Imagine with me this. You wake up one morning, and as you stretch your hands over your head, you feel the pain of hunger in your stomach. You look across the small, single room that is your entire house, and you see your mom sitting at the kitchen table. She looks tired and worn out, her head's down, and she looks withered. You've already seen your dad day by day, starve to death, and he's no longer with you. You walk across the dirt floor of your one-room house and look out the small window onto the streets of your home, Jerusalem, and another body is laying in the streets, discarded. It had been months of this. It seemed like forever that the Babylonians had been surrounding the city walls, waiting for you to starve, and indeed you had, and you were just about to give up. It seemed like just a year ago that all the talk had been about how the great king of Egypt, Pharaoh, had defeated Nebuchadnezzar and his troops out in the lands to the east, and how that meant, as everyone had hoped, that King Zedekiah would finally, once and for all, be able to push the Babylonians out of the land. They'd been there for as long as you could remember, getting in the way of everything and even taking some of your closest friends off to foreign lands. The thing is, is that your hope and your confidence and your trust was in these people in the king of Egypt, in the king of Zedekiah, and even in your walls that surrounded your city. But as you turn away from the window, you hear the sound of what could be thunder, but you know that it's the walls breaking down. The next several hours are some of the most difficult of your entire life as you wait for the Babylonians to show up. As you hear the city burn and the Babylonians pillage, they finally arrive at your house, kick down the door, violently drag you and your mom through the bloody streets of Jerusalem and ultimately to begin your long walk to the land of Babylon. You're forced to ask yourself the question, what are you going to do now? Now, you may not have ever experienced anything like that. You haven't had the Babylonian armies surrounding your home And you haven't had to trust in your parents to protect you from that. You haven't had to trust in the mayor of Aliso Viejo to ward off the Babylonians. You certainly haven't had to watch Aliso Town Center burn. Uh, Don't worry, no matter how evil the Babylonians may be, they're going to leave the Chick-fil-A intact. Don't worry about that. But, But we've never experienced anything like that. However, the reality is, is that if you are honest with yourself... There are people you trust in now who will let you down in your time of need tomorrow. We are too quick to take God out of his rightful place and put people where God ought to be in our minds. We are too quick to do that because we don't often think of the consequences of that. Scripture is abundantly clear about the sort of results that we can expect in our life when we trust in God and the sort of results that we can expect 
when we trust in man. Our passage today speaks directly to that. So turn with me to Jeremiah 17. We'll be looking at verses 5 through 8. Jeremiah 17, starting in verse 5, says this. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes. For its leaves remain green and it is not anxious in the year of drought. For it does not cease to bear fruit. It's important that we remember how Judah got into this position, ultimately of collapsing and falling to the Babylonians. Simply put, the people of Judah, the people of Israel, failed to trust God. Rather than trusting in what God had commanded them to do, they eagerly and even at some points desperately pursued the gods of the foreign lands around them. Rather than committing themselves to sacrificing as God had instructed them, they sacrificed to foreign gods, even sometimes their own children, and ironically hoping for increased fertility. Rather than trusting God to provide the protection for the land that they needed, they went out and hired at great cost foreign kings with mighty armies to fight their battles for them. And God, after warning them numerous times, finally rips them out of the promised land, takes them from the land flowing with milk and honey, and puts them into the desolate wilderness, so to speak, of Babylon. We, too, ought to be careful that we don't find ourselves doing the exact same thing, placing our trust in man and then finding ourselves in a spiritual wasteland. Do you trust in God or do you trust in gods? Put in a less abstract form of that question, do you trust in your friends to relieve that feeling of loneliness that you have? to give you the affirmation that you desire? Do you trust your parents to provide all the equipment that you need to pursue that sport that you have so much talent in or musical instruments so that you can build that natural musical ability you have? Do you trust in politicians to build the utopia that you think is best? If we're honest with ourselves, we trust in people far more often than we ought to. And when we trust in people, we find ourselves in that spiritual wasteland. We find ourselves lost and wondering, what do we do now? Well, the first thing is point number one, stop finding security in people. Stop finding security in people. Looking back at our passage in Jeremiah 17, it says this, thus says the Lord. So this is God himself speaking. And what is God saying? He is saying, cursed is the man who trusts in man. God is cursing the person who trusts in mankind, who trusts in the philosophies, the ideas, 
the security that man promises. Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength and makes the brokenness of humanity his strength. So, we need to recognize, and this may seem abundantly clear, but I think it's something that we're not quick to recognize, is that people will fail us. The people that we look to, the leaders, the people of influence in our lives will let us down. They are flesh, and we recognize that they will fail us at some point. You may know of the pastor Carl Lentz. He's a pastor in New York City at Hillsong Church. He's best known for baptizing or being the person who baptized Justin Bieber. And, and, and what a thing to be known for. Imagine that being your thing. Like, I'm the guy who baptized Justin Bieber. That's the end of my life summary. Nonetheless, he is known as the, the, the pastor who just, uh, Justin Bieber was baptized by. But he, he was the pastor of, in this church in New York City. Um, just in the last couple of weeks, he was let go from that position. And it seems like for a variety of reasons, but the most significant, it appears, is that he was unfaithful to his wife. Now, if you, and I hope none of you were, but if you theoretically had been looking to Carl Lentz, the man, to help you understand what it means to be faithful, you had been looking to him to define the definition of faithfulness. And perhaps he coincidentally used scripture, but you were trusting in him. And not only that, you were looking to him to demonstrate in his own life what it meant to be faithful. When he fails, you will certainly be shaken. You will begin asking the question, is being faithful, as Carl Lentz described it, something of importance or even something that is true at all? You'll begin to wonder, are the other things that Carl Lentz taught me true or of importance at all? And ultimately, if you're trusting in a man to tell you what faithfulness is, and he lets you down, you'll end up questioning everything you believe in and your entire faith. Instead, we ought to trust primarily and first and foremost in God. So what does that look like? Well, it begins before the person fails. We certainly listen to the small group leader, to our parents, to the pastor, whoever it is that is instructing us on faithfulness. We carefully and diligently take notes and study what they have to say. But if you were trusting in the man, perhaps it would stop there. But if we're trusting in God, you invest in small groups. You discuss what it means to be faithful in small groups. More importantly, you are comparing what you're learning about faithfulness to your daily Bible reading and praying to God to help you understand what it means to be faithful and where in your own life you might not be being faithful yourself. So when the man, whoever it is, lets you down and doesn't demonstrate faithfulness in their own life, your confidence, your trust is not in him because man fails. But God does not fail and scripture does not fail. Scripture will not let you down and God will not demonstrate anything but perfect righteousness. You may know the Pope, the Pope of the Roman Catholic Church. The Pope has an incredible set of authorities 
and rules and things that he does within the Roman Catholic Church. The Pope is the primary and some might even suggest the exclusive means by which man communicates with God. He's a man though, and we've already established that men are frail and broken. But the Roman Catholic Church nonetheless places an enormous amount of security and hope and trust in this man. The Pope, if you may not know, is actually, according to the Roman Catholic Church, established on the apostleship of Peter. The Roman Catholic Church points to the things that Jesus says about Peter and says that that establishes the role of the Pope in the church. Now, to make it abundantly clear, the sort of commitment the church has to Peter, but the Pope, is best explained, I think, by a quote from a monk who lived in about 400 A.D., He says, that great man, the disciple of disciples, that master among masters, who, wielding the government of the Roman church, possessed the principal authority in faith and in priesthood. The principal authority. And this monk, John Cassian, says, tell us, therefore, we beg you, Peter, prince of the apostles, tell us how the churches must believe in God. So they place an enormous amount of confidence, an enormous amount of trust in the Pope. And that Pope is based on the apostleship of Peter. But an interesting thing that you may have come across already if you are a faithful studier of your Bible is that Peter, the apostle Peter, is time and time again demonstrated to be flesh. It pops up all over the place. Consider Matthew 16 where Jesus is rebuked by Peter. Consider Matthew 26, where Peter falls asleep in the garden when he should be praying. Consider, is described in Mark 14, the instance where Peter cuts off the servant's ear as Jesus is being arrested in self-defense. And best known, consider in Matthew 26, Peter's denial of Jesus three times on the night when he is crucified. What a man to place such significance and confidence in as the Roman Catholic Church does. Now, we must make a clear, clear distinction on this matter. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We'll be looking at just a couple verses there. It's important that we make this distinction because many people will look at someone like Carl Lentz and then suggest that because man is flesh, we ought to ignore them, to throw them out, to not have small group leaders, to not have pastors, or to disrespect our parents because they are broken people. But Paul, speaking to the Corinthians, makes this abundantly clear. He says this in 1 Corinthians 3. For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? Paul and Apollos are humans, they're flesh. Paul says, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? And this is the key phrase that we need to look at. They are servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. So we have to recognize that God is assigning these fleshly human leaders in our lives. God himself is the one that establishes these people that we ought to look to. But who are these people? They are servants 
through whom you believed. They're not the end-all, be-all of what you believe, but rather the instruments that God has assigned to you through whom you believe. I'm going to make a distinction here and suggest that we are to trust in God and honor our parents. Certainly not honor them in simple lip service or simply uh, making them feel as though we respect them, but honoring implies that we take seriously what they have to say, we implement it in our lives, and we can do that, and we can properly honor our parents, we can properly honor the leaders that God has put in our lives when we are trusting first and foremost in God, understanding that he is the one who has established those people in our life. So not only is trusting in people a serious problem for us personally, meaning it causes us discomfort or we're sad when they let us down, but also trusting in people, idolizing people, means rejecting God. It means rejecting God. Consider the end of verse 5 in our passage in Jeremiah. It says, Thus says the Lord, Cursed is this man who trusts in man who makes flesh his strength. But there's one phrase there at the end that makes this abundantly clear, that rejecting God is the result of trusting in man. It says, whose heart turns away from the Lord. It's not if a man trusts a little bit in man or partially in people, but if a man trusts at all in man, he is definitionally someone who turns away from the Lord. Idolizing people means rejecting God. Consider this. Think about this. If God were to describe what you do in one short sentence, what would that sentence look like? Not your character, not your personality, not what you believe, but what you do. Some might say, I am a dutiful daughter. Perhaps you say, I am diligent in my education, and I spend my days and my hours studying and preparing. Perhaps you say, I am hard at work practicing for whatever sort of tournament is in Arizona next week, or whatever game is coming up next. Perhaps some of you even will say that you are faithful, diligent servants around here at Compass. There is one description that we must avoid at all costs. There is one description that God can give us that is by far the worst description. King Zedekiah, the king who oversaw the fall of Jerusalem in those last few days to Babylon, got this description. Read with me 2 Kings 24, 18. 2 Kings 24, starting in verse 18 It's just a couple sentences long, and it describes everything that has to be said about Zedekiah's life. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hamutal, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna. And listen to this. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that Jehoiakim had done. That is a terrible, terrible description and something that we ought not ever have God describe us as. How did King Zedekiah get such a description? Well, at a very high level, he's obviously the king of Judah, God's people. And he, because he's God's people, spent much of his time playing, pretending to serve God with half-hearted attempts 
He even went to Jeremiah the prophet at certain points and asked Jeremiah, what does God want me to do in this situation? Almost always to reject what Jeremiah had to say for him. Meanwhile, he was pursuing the gods of the foreign lands around him. He was trusting in the king of Egypt to provide protection for him. And what does God see? How does God describe that? God doesn't give him partial credit. God does not give him partial credit for the attempts he made to worship and serve God. And instead, God just sees the sin in King Zedekiah's life. The people of Judah as a whole, the people of Israel as a whole, did this exact same thing. They were God's people. They saw what God did to bring them out of the land of Egypt. They saw the miracles. And very quickly, almost immediately, they began to serve other gods, despite all the things that they saw God do. God is not going to be satisfied with this. The first few verses of the passage that we're reading from Jeremiah 17 make this abundantly clear. It says, The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron, with the point of a diamond. It is engraved on the tablet of their heart and on the horns of their altar. This is not fleeting. This is not something that was just a passing thing, but rather engraved in them. While their children, reading on, while their children remember their altars and their ashram, which are beside every green tree on the high hills and on the mountains in the open country, God sees that sin. And again, he does not give the people of Judah partial credit for their attempt to worship him. And rather, he responds by doing this. He says, your wealth and all your treasures I will give to you I will give four spoil as the price of your high places for sin throughout all your territory. You shall loosen your hand from your heritage that I gave you, and I will make you serve your enemies in a land that you do not know. For in my anger a fire is kindled that shall burn forever. So we must recognize and not allow this to take place in our own lives. We must understand that idolizing people at all means rejecting God. Now you might be saying to yourself, Mark, There's no one in my life who I have ever trusted in who's let me down. There's no one in my life who I've ever looked to and they've spoiled it for me. And in fact, Mark, I can tell you that I wholeheartedly and confidently trust in God alone. If that is where you are at, I caution you to be all the more careful and to take this all the more seriously because trusting in man is a subtle thing. Very rarely Maybe, if ever, do we point at someone and say, I trust in that person. I wholeheartedly think that they're going to solve the problems that I have. A few instances or a few cases of this subtle trust um, that I was thinking through might help you understand what I'm talking about. You might know the name. I say you might. You do know the name Charlie D'Amelio. Now, I want to say that she, you know, I'm I'm a little clinical, and I want to say that she is of incredible significance in the social media community. You might not describe her that way. You might say something like, she's she's gas, right? She's she's significant. I'm going to say she's significant. You can say that she's gas. Thank you, Andrew, for helping me understand that word. Charlie D'Amelio is selling you something, though. Why is she important? Why do you watch her? It's because she's selling you something. She's selling you the idea that you can go from someone of no significance to someone 
of incredible wealth and power. She went from being like us, nobodies, to being this superstar with all this attention and praise poured upon her. She's selling you that idea. She is suggesting to you that just like her, if you post the right video at the right time, you likewise can achieve all these great things. And although you may never point at her and say, I trust in her to solve my problems, it's very possible that you watch her hoping that that might be you one day. If you don't think that, if you don't think that, perhaps you watch her and you want to dress like her. But every video you post, or excuse me, that she posts, every video that she posts will be, she'll be wearing something different. She'll be wearing a new outfit, and every time you're going to be wanting that next thing. She's not going to leave you satisfied. You are not going to be the superstar that she is, and you're never going to attain that level of prestige. You're not going to be dressed like Charlie D'Amelio. She's going to always want, leave you wanting more. Perhaps you trust in politicians. Again, a subtle trust. I doubt you ever point to a politician and say, they're going to solve all my problems. But perhaps you look to someone like Donald Trump and say that if he gets elected again, he's going to be able to establish an America that does all the things that I want it to do, that will take care of me and protect me. But Donald Trump is, at some point, not going to get reelected. And even if he gets reelected, he has a term limit. And even if he has a term limit, perhaps you won't be part of the constituents, part of the people that are, he's, he's working to please, because perhaps your views fall out of public favor. He will abandon you at some point, either coincidentally or intentionally. Or perhaps you trust in your friends. Again, subtle. Perhaps you look to your friends to solve the problems of loneliness in your life. Perhaps you use your friends as a means of solving that problem when you should instead be looking to a relationship with God to solve that problem in your life. So your friends are going to leave you lonely. Politicians are going to abandon you. And social media influencers are going to leave you wanting more. So there's only one place left to look, Christian. That is to God. Point number two is we need to trust only God to fulfill your needs. Trust only God to fulfill your needs. Looking back at our passage in Jeremiah 17, we just talked about the man who is cursed because he trusts in man. And now we're going to look at the man who is blessed because he trusts in the Lord. Looking at verse 7, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. Definitionally, his trust is the Lord. He doesn't just choose to put his trust in the Lord. His trust is the Lord. And how is this man blessed? He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green. And it is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. You and I have needs. We have needs. One of those needs that we often don't think about, and I don't think we think about it because we live in 21st century America, and specifically in Orange County, California, is the need for food and shelter and people around us. I don't think we think about it because the grocery stores are 
full of food. There's very few people looking for a house. And there's rarely ever a time when there aren't people around us. But you may have gotten some sense of what it's like to have a need not fulfilled during the coronavirus when we were all locked down and hopefully we don't end up there again. But you might have gotten some sense of that. The grocery stores began to run low on food. They didn't run low completely out of food. They began to run low on food. You were constrained to being with just your family. So you might have gotten some sense of that. But we didn't truly suffer. We did not truly suffer. But there may come a time when we do look those needs in the face. And it may indeed come in your lifetime. So we should be prepared for it. Consider the example of Daniel. Daniel is most well known for Daniel in the lion's den. But there's an incredible story of his willingness to trust in God to provide for his needs in the very first chapter of Daniel. Turn with me there, if you will, to Daniel 1. Daniel was one of the exiles from the promised land. He was one of the people who were ripped out of the promised land and taken in exile to Babylon. But he had the special privilege of being in the king's court. This position in the king's court meant that effectively he would be indoctrinated with the teachings and the beliefs of Babylon. And there's a privilege, as it were, that came with being in the king's court, which is that he got to eat from the king's table. Now, Daniel knew, though, that if he were to eat from the king's table, it would break the law that God had given him, that he would have to eat unclean food. So Daniel effectively doesn't have food. Daniel and his friends come up with a solution to this. Let's start reading in Daniel 1, starting in verse 8. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And what does God do? And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. So they come up with this plan that Daniel is going to eat vegetables and water. He's going to eat vegetables and water for 10 days, and he is going to prove that he is going to be healthier than all the rest who are eating from the king's table. Look at verse 15. At the end of the 10 days, it was seen that they were better, Daniel and his friends were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate, at the king's, from the, ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and gave, uh, took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. So God solves their problem, but he doesn't just stop there. Read this last phrase with me. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Another familiar passage that speaks exactly to what we're talking about comes from Matthew 6, looking at verse 25 and 26. It says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. We shouldn't be anxious about these practical needs that we may have. Is life not more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Incredible 
And we ought to look to God as the only source of fulfilling our physical needs. Because the groceries that are in your fridge right now, or the food that sustained Daniel, the vegetables that sustained Daniel, are from the hand of God himself. Like I said, we live in incredible comfort. We have food right now. We have housing right now. We have people around us right now. But that may not always be the case. Consider, consider Daniel, maybe consider Daniel's parents. They lived in the land of Judah when it was still Judah. And somebody, let's assume it's Daniel's parents, are still faithful to God. There were some that were still faithful to God, even as the rest of the people go careening off towards godlessness and towards pursuing those foreign idols. Those people who remain faithful to God certainly, I'm sure, ran into obstacles. But I doubt that they were in mass losing their jobs or unable to pay for food because they worshipped and held to being faithful to God. But those faithful that were in Israel, that were in Judah, that are taken to the, Bab- the land of Babylon are now going to face intense, intense persecution. That may well be us someday. One of the best stories of these faithful, those that loved God, was the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You likely know the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were some, like Daniel, that were taken from the promised land. And at one point, King Nebuchadnezzar sets up an idol, sets up a golden idol that they are to worship. And every time I read the story, I think of the chocolate bunny from VeggieTales. I can't get that image out of my head. <laughs> Perhaps in your small groups tonight, you can watch that song from VeggieTales. <laughs> but nonetheless, King Nebuchadnezzar sets up this idol, and he tells everyone, bow down to it. Well, as you know, the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is that they don't. They refuse. And their refusal results in them having an appearance before King Nebuchadnezzar. And they, after being threatened with the furnace, say this in Daniel 3, 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter after being threatened with the furnace. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. What an incredible statement of trusting in God. It's no demand but it does fully recognize that God cares deeply about these three and will respond to their need if he so chooses, and he is able to. Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. Recognizing that even if they die at the hand of Nebuchadnezzar in the furnace, that God will ultimately deliver them. But... If not, we be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden bunny, the image that you have set up. Now listen to this. Nebuchadnezzar clearly thought that they were going to respond to this threat because it says, then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury and the expression on his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And you could hear the anger and the fury in what he does. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. I mean, imagine opening your oven and it's seven times hotter than that. 
And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were clearly hastily bound just in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Imagine opening your oven and it being so hot that it kills you like that. Incredible. Then we see Nebuchadnezzar have his appearance change again. Then Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, oh, true, O king. He answered and said to them, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like the son of the gods. This is an incredible story of God's provision, his willingness to protect us in times of persecution. And we should be prepared when we face times of persecution. And Lord willing, nothing like this will happen in our lifetimes. But if it does, we ought to be prepared with a similar statement. We ought to be willing to say, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. Incredible statement, and we ought to recognize that God alone can keep you safe in times of persecution. But I also want you to understand that God is not simply in the business of restoring you back to the comfortable state you were in before. Rather, God cares deeply about you and will, as I'm going to put it, keep you flourishing in times of trouble. Look with me back at our passage in Jeremiah 17. Blessed, looking at verse 7, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when the heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. But notice something about this. The tree relies on the water. The tree relies on the water. And the water produces not just a tree that isn't dead. It produces a tree that has green leaves. And beyond that, it produces a tree that bears fruit. And it has green leaves and it's bearing fruit when the heat comes, when persecution comes, when your needs are threatened. It is not anxious in the year of drought, when the intensities and pressures of this life of sin and this fallen world are upon you. Continue to bear fruit. If you can't relate to any of this, if this seems extremely foreign to you, perhaps you say that you're not a Christian. The reality is is that we require the water to bear fruit, to have green leaves, and this water is Christ. The things that come about in our lives, especially when we're in times of persecution and trouble, are the results of Christ. The tree is nothing. The tree is dead when heat comes and droughts come when there is no water. And likewise, so are we. Who remembers Revival 19? It's been a while. It's been a year and a half. Who remembers Revival 19? (laughs) Who Who remembers the memory verse from Revival 2019? Not a single hand. Not a single hand. 
Any of the memory verses. I'm thinking of one specific. No, okay. Not a single person. Revelation 21, 1 through 4 was one of the verses. In Revelation 21, we learn of the new Jerusalem that is promised by God. This is a new Jerusalem that God knew he would establish when the old Jerusalem was burned and destroyed. Listen to Revelation 21, 1 through 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Jerusalem had fallen. And in fact, at this point in Revelation, the whole world had fallen. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. The old Jerusalem had the temple. The temple burns, but in this new Jerusalem that God establishes, he will dwell directly with his people. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. So imagine with me this. You live in the new Jerusalem. You wake up. Well, you don't wake up, but you are always awake, and you recognize that God is fulfilling your hunger, both your physical and your spiritual hunger. You don't have to watch your mom starve or your dad die because death is no more. You don't have to look out the window to see corpse. You get to see streets covered in gold. Your full confidence, your full trust, your full assurance is in God, and you get to experience his blessings. No one else is able to do this. No one else is able to establish new Jerusalem. No foreign armies, no king of Judah, no social media influencer, no politician, no flesh. God alone was able to do this. So trust in God alone. Let me pray for us. 